you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Fathers, we bow before you this morning. Father, we have spent time in prayer. We spent time, Father, confessing our sin. We spent time reflecting on the gospel of Christ and all that you have done for us. We have sung praises to your name. We have sung about the gospel and what Jesus has, again has done for us. And Father, we now commit our, ourselves to reading, reflecting upon your word as we desire, Father, to, to hear from you, where the Lord is to be reminded of truths that we know, to have these things more solidly implanted in our hearts and minds, perhaps to think about some of these things in a new way. Father, we desire that our strength be renewed. We desire, Father, to be encouraged, that our hearts will be lifted up, that our joy may be full, that we have greater contentment, that, Father, we would really be of greater use to you throughout this week in the lives of our family, the lives of our friends, the lives of our co-workers. And so, Father, we thank you that you are here with us at this moment. We believe, Lord, and know that you are powerful, that you have the ability to enable us, Father, to understand your word, to be able to apply your word, to have the desire to apply your word to our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would do that work in us. We do thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So as you know, over the past several weeks, we've been looking at, in detail, the things that Paul has been saying about really life after death and our body and the kind of body we're going to have and how we know all these things are true. But again, as he continues on, this truth that he's giving us is not only to be that which gives us comfort when we get older and we know that death is coming. I mean, it does that, and, and it's good, but it's more than that. This truth that he has, that he's been giving us and explaining to us, is to have an effect on the way that we are living now, the way that we approach the world, the way that we respond to our circumstances. It is to be really a, a, a tangible thing that you can really grasp. It, it is to have this visible effect on us, on the way we think, and again, on our, our attitudes, on our emotions, on how we handle good news and bad news, and really how we handle every aspect of life. And so that's why he begins when he says, so we are, or because all the, of these truths that I've given you, because of that, we are always of good courage. Courage here, the word that he uses, it's got two forms that's used in the Bible, and it's basic sense is like to dare or to be bold, to be of good courage, to be cheerful or confident. It's just to trust in or rely on. It is to be bold against someone or something, to go out bravely. 
The Septuagint always has that basic sense. Plato, in his writings, suggests that boldness in face of death is possible only when there is an awareness of the soul's immortality. Now, I'm not recommending that you read Plato, but I do think it's interesting that he, that he views it that way, that we are able to be bold in the face of death, and the only reason that we're able to be bold in the face of death is because we have an awareness that we are immortal. Now, obviously, he doesn't hold to Christian doctrine, so he doesn't know what he's talking about, but, but there's some truth there, something for us to chew on. We know we live in a threatening world. We, we know it's threatening in varying degrees. But what I want you to keep in mind this morning is as we work our way through this, again, that, that what he's talking about not only applies to us, it applies to the believers that are in the Ukraine right now that have not been able to escape. We know that they're, they're facing death. Death can come from disease, lack of food, lack of water lack of medical treatment because of what's going on there. They can be hit by stray rockets or bombs or whatever's going on in, in that area. And then you have the uncertainty of those who have escaped, who are in other countries, who are grateful that you know maybe other families have taken them in and they have a place to sleep and they have food for the day and food for tomorrow, but what is their life going to be a year from now? They may be even unable to even think in those terms because there's such great uncertainty in their life. These truths are for them as well. That they, they, they can live with courage and boldness. This is not a positive thinking kind of thing where you know they can just happily face each day. Paul is keeping in mind that there is this purpose with which we live. That there's a reason why we are living. Something beyond just trying to exist from day to day, something more than just trying to survive, even something more than just wanting to be happy or to be happy, there's, there's more that he's talking about here, much more. But this idea here that we are to be courageous, that we can, that we can be of good courage, that we, that we can have boldness is specific for all believers, regardless of what it is that we're facing. Our boldness doesn't rest on a dubious theory of that somehow the soul is immortal. It's not that we are in the process of becoming deified, that somehow we're going to become like a god. It is on the historical event of the victorious death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You will notice that when you study the things that Paul is saying, that Paul continuously comes back to this event, this, this real, real historical event, event that has taken place. What, what we talk about each week, about what Christ has done for us, we're speaking again of a real person. He really did live on the earth. He really did live his life perfectly. He did perform miracles before those who believed in him and in front of those who did not believe in him. All of that was going on. He did prove himself to be son of God. He proved he was able indeed to forgive sin. And this culminates in not only in his death, but in his resurrection from the dead. And so we speak of that often. When we, when we have the confidence to confess our sin, not because we're, you know, it's not like a little kid who might be cornered and is forced to confess what they've done wrong, and they do so the whole time in fear of being punished. We, we don't do that out of that. 
we do so really out of, out of gratefulness, still feeling bad or sorry for the wrong that we've done, but with this absolute confidence that we've, we've been forgiven and that I belong to the Lord. And no matter what I confess, he's not going to reject me. He's not going to push me away. He's not going to do that. And so then this practical advice that he's giving us, this, this statement that we are to be of good courage, is we are living in light of the truth of the gospel, and we are to express this and, and embrace this every day of our lives. He does mention that we are now separated from Christ, but we are still of good courage. Because again, we have the pledge of the Spirit that we talked about last week. So the idea, and I came across this uh, statement, it says, truth received and believed stabilizes confidence and courage. That means it stabilizes the individual. It stabilizes the confidence in you. It stabilizes the courage that we are to have. Because I know this truth, because I believe this, because I've embraced this, then those attributes in my life are stabilized. They're not, they're not going back and forth. It's not, that I'm, it's not that I'm sometimes courageous, you know, and I'm feeling strong spiritually, and then sometimes I'm not courageous. You know, we are, we are to grow beyond that, to where this confidence we have in Christ, these convictions that we have, our, uh, the strength of these things and the benefits of these things aren't based on my emotion at the moment. It's not based on how I'm feeling at the moment. It goes beyond that. Secondly, and I do like this word that's used in the Bible, and it's used in different ways, and there's different Greek words for it. He says, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We know. In your notes there, it, it, the word knowledge or the word know is E-I-D-O, um, but I do believe it's pronounced Ido, and it means in general to know by perception. Now, when I came across that phrase, to me, that wasn't really clear. You go on to read some of the dictionaries, and it says it literally prefers or refers to perception by sight or to perceive. Well, that wasn't helping me either. In Matthew 2.2, 2, this, this uh, word is used in the sense of, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So they're coming to worship Jesus because they see something. They have, they have perceived something. So when you compare this word, I do, compared to the other word that's often used for knowledge, which is, which is gnosko, or epigonosko, or epigonosis, it is, it is different from that word, because that word refers to knowledge that is obtained by experience. It's actually a, a combination of intellectual knowledge, and it's kind of reinforced by experience, and, and so there's this process of knowing, and as you go through this process really of learning, you come to know something. But this word I do means it refers to more of an intuitive knowledge. It is not so much that which is known by experience, but as intuitive insight that is drilled into your heart. So it is a perception. It is a being aware of. It is an understanding. It is intuitive knowledge, which in the case of the believer can only be given by the Holy Spirit. So it does then suggest fullness of knowledge, absolute knowledge rather than this progress in knowledge so we would express it this way that paul paul's knowledge is beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's the kind of you know you put this knowledge and this faith together that's kind of what you're going to experience it's it's, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt there's no no hint of, of, of limitation it's not diminished in my mind in any way nothing's going to affect it because this is what i in a sense i know to be true 
And so this kind of knowledge motivates the individual and sustains their ongoing courage. Now these truths that Paul is talking about, they are spiritual. Paul didn't come to grasp them just because he was smarter than everybody else. He came to know them beyond a shadow of a doubt because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had opened the eyes of his heart. So the same thing applies to us. We cannot just read and truly understand these spiritual truths without a continued dependence on and yielding to our teacher who is the Holy Spirit. So then when you read through the scripture, you, this should be your ha habit of doing this, that when we read that we always ask the Lord to give us understanding of what we're about to read. That the Lord will speak to us through his word. That, that in doing so, it's not that we're looking to read the scripture to reinforce some idea that we already have, but that I will come to know the truth of what I'm looking at, of what I'm reading. I want to understand this, these words, these sentences, these thoughts, these paragraphs that are given to me. And I want to be strengthened by them. And I, and I know that even though I might be able to reason through some of them, I need the help of the Holy Spirit to grasp them. And then not only to grasp them, but to be able to apply these things to the way that I'm living my life. That they will have an effect on me. Another use of this word uh, I do is found in 1 John 5.13, where, where John writes, these, writes this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So there is this idea in the scripture that you and I can know, we can perceive this to be true, that it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have, that I possess eternal life. Because it is not based on my ability to believe. It is based on who Christ is and what he's done. I know that to be true. And God has said this was done for me. My sins are forgiven. I know I'm going to have this place in heaven. So everything he's talking about here in 2 Corinthians 5, you know, the future, being in heaven, this new body, all these things he's talking about, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. You, on your own, apart from the Bible and apart from the Holy Spirit, are not going to be able to convince yourself so that you can stand strong on these things. We become convinced of these things because of our dependence upon the Holy Spirit as he works in us and changes our heart. Again, this is not a brainwashing technique. You know, this is not where someone is becoming sleep-deprived and we're, we're keeping food away from you. We keep repeating certain things so that, you know, you become maybe zombie-like in, in, in this kind of thing. But the idea here is that there is a spiritual truth and God is opening our hearts and our minds that has been affected by the curse of sin that is naturally hardened to spiritual truth and he is penetrating that hardness to give to us this understanding and this truth of, of what God is doing and has done and will do for us. And this then transforms my attitude in life. It, it gives me a new paradigm. It's information that affects the way I evaluate what I'm facing and what I'm looking at. And that's what Paul is talking about here. I can be of good courage. It doesn't matter what the news is because I know these things here to be true. I know for a fact that whatever I'm going through, this is temporary. I know that. Those living in the Ukraine know that no matter how bad this is, and it's bad, and they don't like it, and they hate it, and it brings grief and trouble, and certainly all those things, they know that what Paul is in here is true. 
And they know that this is not all there is. And there's a very real relief. They're going to live in a very real place. They really will be reunited with their family and their loved ones and their friends who all believe in Christ. And then that cannot be affected or taken away by the Russians or by anybody else. And they know that. So he says in verse 7 that the reason why we are of good courage is not only because of the truth of these things, it's also because of this. We walk by faith, not by sight. In this life, we have to walk. We have to live under the conditions of faith. We are not living under the conditions of what is seen. Belief, no matter how strong, cannot be the same as sight. And from a Christ who cannot, and from a Christ whom we cannot see, we are to that extent separated, just as a blind man is cut off from the world to which he nevertheless belongs. Verse 7 is a very short verse, for we walk by faith and not by sight. The Amplified does a marvelous job with this verse in helping us to see clearly what he is talking about, and the application is here. And so the Amplified reads this way, For we walk by faith, we regulate our lives, and conduct ourselves by our conviction, or our belief, respecting man's relationship to God and divine things, with holy trust and holy fervor. Thus we walk, not by sight or appearance. I really think that that is magnificent. That really helps to bring home what he's talking about. This is the way we live. When we talk about living as Christians, this, that does not mean, again, that you just, you know, on your weekly calendar, you write in on Sunday, church. That doesn't mean that. That certainly is included. But it's much more than that. This means I regulate my life and conduct myself in the way that I speak to my wife, in the way that I treat her, in the way that I approach my marriage, in the way that I approach my family, in the way that I approach my job, in the way that I approach my friends, in the way that I get along with strangers, in the way that I treat other people. Everything, every aspect in my life is regulated by Scripture. It is this regulation is not like the government regulation, which is nothing but heavy chains around our neck. This is freeing me from the, these things that would so easily weigh me down. The, the worrying about death and the worrying about the future. I don't have any of that. Oh, sure, I'm a human being, and those things cross my mind from time to time. But I don't allow them to weigh me down. At least I don't want to allow them to weigh me down because of these things. That's why we remain in the Word, to be reminded because we forget. Not that we forget in the sense that we've never known this before, but we forget in the sense that this is, how this, that this is an important truth that is to, again, have an effect on, on everything that I do and how I see things and how I understand them. Warren Wearsby says this. He asked the question, how do you walk by faith? By claiming the promises of God and obeying the word of God in spite of what you see in spite of how you feel or what may happen. It means committing yourself to the Lord and relying wholly on him to meet the need. When we live by faith, it glorifies God. It witnesses to a lost world and builds Christian character into our lives. God has ordained that the righteous will live by faith. 
So it is God's will for you and for me to not live by sight right now. It is his will that we live by faith, that we live our lives believing what he has said and then conducting ourselves according to what the word, to what the word says. That, that, that means I'm living in dependence on the word. I'm following what it says. It, 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 on one sense, you can say, well, it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. I'm going to do what it says. Well, I'm glad you're committed, but it does make a lot of sense. So, so it's not quite that, but in a sense it is. But we're committed to this. Being committed to that is not that I'm committed to including the Bible in my thoughts and then kind of mixing it with my own philosophy and figuring out life on my own. You don't have to do all that. It's been done for you. It's easier than hamburger helper. Right? Just, it's right here. Of course, the application is hard because it goes against our nature. But it's here for us. All of us have access to this. So just think for a moment again about this living by faith. Because again, as, as we talk about living by faith, we do need to remind ourselves, what does it mean? Well, when you look at saving faith, you hear, you've heard me mention this, you've heard others talk about this, that it is trust in Jesus Christ. It's trust in Jesus as a living person for the forgiveness of sins, for eternal life. This definition, the word trust, emphasizes that saving faith is not just a belief in facts, it is a personal, individual trust in Jesus to save me. That definition emphasizes, again, my personal trust in Christ, not just belief in the facts about Christ. And that's where we can sometimes get confused. Individuals will say, well, I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised to believe in Christ. That's good, but that doesn't mean you're a believer. Because you were raised to believe in those facts to be true. But have you put your trust in them? Are you trusting in the person of Christ? <clears throat> Saving faith in Scripture always involves personal trust. It is a better word to use today in our culture because the word faith or the word belief just don't carry the strength they once did. Again, the reason that we can, and again, the reason for that is because it is possible that we can believe something to be true with no personal commitment or dependence involved in it. So that's a possibility. So that's why we need to emphasize the word trust. So when looking at this passage, John Piper came up with this observation. He says that Paul renews his inner man by looking to those things that are unseen. He looks at three possibilities, and he prefers them in this order. Number one, Paul prefers that Christ would come and clothe his mortal body with immortality so that he would not have to die and be incomplete. In other words, he, he wants the Lord to return right now so I can skip the death part and be transformed. That would be, that's the best. So I would be in agreement with Paul. That, that's what I would like. That would be awesome. I, I don't care if it happens today, tomorrow, or if I live to be 85, I'm good with that. But if that can't happen, if it's, if it's not God's will for that to happen, then Paul says he prefers to be absent from the body rather than just live on here. He loves Christ more than he loves anything else. And he knows that to be absent from the body will mean that he will be at home with the Lord. In other words, no matter how close he is to the Lord now, when he is physically with the Lord, there will be a deeper intimacy and a greater, I guess you would say, at-homeness with the Lord than anything we can know here. So he's, he's good with that. And so he's, you know, that's why when Paul went through his travels, 
You just don't see him panicking when it, when it comes time where he faces what we call these near-death experiences. They, they don't have a traumatic effect on his life. As far as we know, Paul did not suffer from PTSD. He didn't say, I'm not going to go here because the last time I went there, I was almost killed. You know, they left me for dead. Now he just goes right back. Doesn't bother him at all. Because he's just fully convinced that God's in charge and, and he's good with that. Because he knows what the future holds. So if it's not God's will for him to be dead at the moment, which it's not, when he wrote this, then um, he says that he would then, um, then I'll walk by faith. I'll just walk in the future grace of God, that God would give me the grace I need when I, when I need it, and I'm not going to live by sight, and that's how I'm going to live. So that's why he says this in verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That's the goal of his life, to please the Lord. That's the most important goal all of us can have. So, if you're nine years old, I don't know if you ever think in terms of goals when you're nine. You know, my goal in life is to obey mom and dad. You know, my goal in life is not to be spanked, you know, that kind of thing. And that, that, those are good goals. But if you're a believer in Christ, your goal is to please the Lord. In other words, it's, it's like, well, I obey mom and dad because that pleases the Lord. Mom and dad have given me chores. Um, I don't like, I may not like them, but I want to please the Lord, so I'm, I'm going to do them. My, my brother and my sister, they're really selfish. I'm tempted to be really selfish back, but I want to please the Lord. You may need God to help you with this, but you have to be more willing to share and seek for peace and not argue. If you're 20, your goal in life is not to finish college and get married. It's okay to have those as things you would like to accomplish. It'd be great. But your goal in life is to please the Lord. No matter what the age is, he says that's what his aim is. And it goes back to, again, we live by faith, not by sight. We regulate our lives. We live in a time when uh, people now make money being a life coach. You can get a life coach online. You can get a life coach on the telephone. I've always wanted to get advice from an individual who learned online how to give me advice. Because you can go online and become a licensed life coach. You should ask yourself, if you have a life coach like that, who is this person? What are their life experiences? You know, it's more than just being trained on how to ask the right questions to motivate you to whatever. And they usually, in fact, they always, I, I've never really heard of one going into any kind of spiritual depth. But there is an example of an individual we can follow. His name is Barak. There's several guys in the Bible named Barak. This guy, I'm sure all of you have heard of, he's in the book of Jeremiah. Barak was a young man. He was of good birth. Many believe that he was a young man with great promise. In other words, he could have made a name for himself. He could have been well-connected politically, financially, and all the rest. And uh, he kind of left all that behind. And his desire was to fulfill, a, his, his lifelong purpose was to, was to fulfill that by serving the Lord, by assisting Jeremiah 
in Jeremiah's divinely appointed prophetic call. As a result, God spared his life when all the others had fled into Egypt were losing theirs. His name has been known and honored by God's people every generation since. And so let me give you some background. Jeremiah chapter 36. He is commanded to write down all the words the Lord gives him. That's Jeremiah. So it says this in verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the, from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah until now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. So Jeremiah called Barak, son of Neriah, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Barak wrote them on the scroll. So that was Barak's job. He, he, he was the scribe. He'd write down everything Jeremiah said. Once the words were written down, they needed to be read. So Jeremiah, because of a long story, was not allowed on the temple grounds. He wasn't exactly a popular guy. And so he sent Barak to read the message to those who would listen. So Barak went. He had this message from Jeremiah. Some of the leaders gather around, and Barak reads what we just read. And then they asked him to read it to them a second time, which he did. When they heard all these words that Barak read from the scroll, they became fearful. And they said, we must report all these words to the king. So they didn't think it would be a good idea for Barak to go do this, because Barak was so closely associated with Jeremiah. So they took the scroll from him, and they went to read to the king. During the time of their audience with the king, Every time they would finish several columns of what had been read, because what I just read, there wasn't all of it. It was just about that. There was a great deal of detail. The king would actually cut those words from the scroll, and he threw them into the fire. And he did so until the entire scroll was destroyed. So God told Jeremiah, do it again. Make another scroll. So he had to call Barak over. And so in Jeremiah chapter 45, it reads this way. This is what Jeremiah the prophet told Barak, son of Neriah, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. After Barak had written on the scroll the words Jeremiah was then dictating, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you, Barak. You said, woe to me, the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am worn out with groaning and find no rest. The Lord said, say this to him, this is what the Lord says, I will overthrow what I have built and uproot what I have planted throughout the land. Should you then seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for I will bring disaster on all peoples, declares the Lord. But wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. So what's going on here is this. Is Brock says, you know, he's got to do this whole thing again, and Brock is kind of concerned. And so he's like, and I'm, it's kind of like Jeremiah, I got all this bad news I got to bring. I'm worn out. I just, I can't go on. And so the Lord says, look, he says, I'm going to overthrow what I've built. I'm going to do that. I'm going to uproot everything I've planted. Judgment is coming on Israel. It's going to come throughout the entire land. So my question to you, Barak, is this. So are you going to quit now and go seek great things for yourself? You're going to quit now and go and try to be the man in politics and, and pursue wealth? Don't do that. Don't do that. I'm going to bring disaster on all the people. It's going to happen. 
but I'll make you this promise. Wherever you go, you'll be spared. So the idea here is that Barak is, is being challenged by God to live his life by faith, by what God says. To leave behind what the world says is the way he should go, and he's going to follow the will of God. That's what he's going to do. There's no earthly life coach that would tell him that. That's what God is telling him to do. And so we need to be like Barak. It, regardless of what we're facing, we need to make it our aim to please the Lord. And the Lord is going to bless your life. Now, I'm not going to tell you what bless means because it can mean a lot of things significantly in your life. It may mean that your life is spared at that moment. It may not. I'm not going to make promises that God hasn't made uh, to you. But the idea here is that this is what God is doing with Barak. And this is what he's telling him to do. Be of good courage. It doesn't matter what others are saying. You're tired of bearing all this bad news. I understand that, but this is what I'm going to do. You know, in a sense, we're faced with the same thing. You do know what the future message is for the world, don't you? Judgment's coming. I mean, that is the Christian message, right? Judgment is coming because God must punish sin. He must. He's a holy God. God is not going to just let things go on for all of eternity. There is an end point to our history. There is. There's an end point coming. And at that point in time, there's going to be judgment. And the only ones who escape judgment are not those who are upright, not those who are righteous, but those who have been saved by God's grace. They will be living more righteously, that is true. But it is not their righteousness that enables them to escape. It's the work of Jesus Christ. And so this is the message. This is the very unpopular message. We can say, I'm tired of bringing this negative message to everybody, but it's the truth. And God is saying to us today as you read through the Bible, I'm going to destroy what I've built. I am going to uproot the land. I'm going to judge this people. He's going to judge the human race. And we've been tasked to, to share this message with others. And what has he promised us? We live by faith, beginning with, with believing what Christ has done for us, and we will be what? Delivered. We will be delivered. This is, the this, is the, this is God's message to us. And so be of good courage. Be strong. Be confident. Live your life by faith. Live your life and feed on the word of God. It is the bread of life. Not everybody is called to be a prophet. Not everyone is called to be an apostle. But all of us can do the will of God. And we can do the will of God by helping others do their work. Barak would be what you might call a layman. But he helped the prophet write the word of God. Again, Barak came to a point in his life where he was so depressed he wanted to quit. But God had a word of encouragement for him. He cautioned him not to build his hopes on the future of Judah because everything would be destroyed. And then God gave him the assurance that his life would be spared. So when we're serving the Lord and his people, we never want to seek great things for ourselves. The only important thing is that God's work is accomplished and God's great name is glorified. John the Baptist put it this way, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so the crisis that people are facing, the crisis that you may be facing now, or the crisis that we might be facing in the future, a crisis doesn't make a person. 
The crisis will reveal what a person is. What I would like to be revealed if I have to face some great crisis is that I'm a man who believes in the word of God and follows Christ to the end. Because that's the most important thing there is, and that really is all that matters. And we can do so with courage and without fear. So we pray for the people in Ukraine. We can pray. They will be a people of faith. They will faithfully obey and be bold for Christ, even in the trying times that they're in. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your kindness, grace, and love. We do, Father, want to pray for those who are in situations that are much worse than what we're facing. And Father, at times we feel bad for them and we want to somehow do more for them, but we know we cannot deliver them. We cannot make governments do anything. We cannot end wars. It's frustrating. But we know, Lord, that you can be trusted. We know all these things are in your hand. We don't understand all that you're allowing to go on day by day, but we we have a, a sense of the big picture. And we thank you for that. And more importantly, we know that this life is not all there is. We know that there's a glorious future for all those who believe. And the message of Christ is the only message that would deliver any man. And so we pray for them. We pray that they will cling to what they know to be true. We pray, Lord, that they will live by faith and be strong. Father, I pray for that for ourselves as well. Even though our affliction is very light compared to theirs, like theirs, it is only for a moment. We pray, Lord, that we'll be faithful to you. That whether in death or when you return, you'll find us faithful. And that will be of good courage. And whether we're nine or ninety, in every age in between, I pray, Lord, that you would find us faithful to you. I pray, Lord, that in committing ourselves to you in this way and depending upon your spirit, I pray that you'll help each one of us to become much more aware of the greater sense of confidence we have in you that there will be a deepening of joy, understanding, satisfaction, that that there there will be this calmness that reigns in our hearts and minds, regardless of what we have to face, and that again there will be this, really, this unspeakable joy that we all will understand, though we may not necessarily be able to put it into words. We ask, Lord, that you would return soon in our lifetime, but if not, We look forward, Father, in a sense to the day of our death, knowing that we'll be with you. And it'll be a a wonderful thing to be with you in that way. But until that day comes for all of us, we pray, Lord, you would help us. That, Lord, that we will live by faith, confident in the future grace that you will give us, and that you will give us the grace we need at the time that we need it, that you may be glorified by our life as well as by our death. We thank you, Lord, for being faithful, and we thank you for this truth. We pray, Lord, that it would be deeply drilled into our hearts, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.